Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of Owen McNeil, and we'll be debating his contribution to Irish history and scholarship and why there was much more to him than just the famous countermanding order in 1916. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at Irish sporting lives across history, the men and women who achieve fame and greatness across different centuries and across all sports. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. A scholar as well as a politician, Owen McNeill was a founding figure in the Gaelic League, the Irish Volunteers and the Government of Ireland. As Professor of Early, including Medieval History, at University College Dublin, he was considered one of the foremost Irish historians of his generation. Remembered today for trying to stop the 1916 Rising and for his role in the Boundary Commission, there was so much more to his life and his legacy. A supporter of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, McNeill lost his son Breen tragically during the conflict, with Breen on the anti-treaty side. The first minister for finance in the first Thal and the first minister for education in the new free state, he was also the founding chairman of the Irish Manuscripts Commission and someone whose scholarship was hugely influential. A new collection of essays explores the life and legacy of the person who fused scholarship and activism together and tonight's show is inspired by it. The book is called Own McNeil, The Pen and the Sword, published in hardback by Cork University Press and edited by Conor Mulva and Emer Purcell and to debate the life and legacy of Own McNeil, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Emer Purcell is a medievalist scholar as well as publications officer for the National University of Ireland. She holds special responsibility for NUI's programme of events and publications to mark the decade of centenaries and has published widely on Viking Age Ireland and medieval Dublin. And she's the co-editor of the Own McNeil book being discussed tonight. Senator Michael McDool is an independent senator for the National University of Ireland and is a former Attorney General and Minister for Justice, and he's a grandson of Owen McNeill. Dr Conor Mulva is the other co-editor of the book and is Associate Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin, where he has special responsibility for the decade of centenaries. And he was widely acclaimed for his role in the organisation of the major national conference on the centenary of the state coming into existence, held last December. Dr Elva Johnston is a leading expert on late antique and early medieval Irish History, based at the School of History at UCD. A member of the Irish Manuscripts Commission, she is the editor of Analecta Hibernica. Well, you're all very welcome. And Connor, I might begin with you. And something that you and Emer explore in the introduction to the volume, which is about how Owen McNeill today is the image we have of him and maybe uh, how we understand him. It's it's, he's somewhat elusive, isn't he? Because people tend to focus on 1916 and people tend to forget about his, his hugely influential role in the, in the Irish volunteers and in, in Irish politics and indeed Irish scholarship uh, for so many decades. 
it, it's an interesting uh, way to look at, at Owen McNeil, Patrick, because I think in one way he's a little bit like that um, anecdote about De Valera. He's like trying to pick up Mercury with a fork. Um, he doesn't really nail down his colours on any particular issue and he's he's a little bit fluid in how he actually changes and moves with the times as he goes. But the other thing about McNeil is he is genuinely everywhere. He is all over Irish history from the Gaelic revival through to the advanced nationalist movement in the uh, early years. He's a home ruler at the time of the home rule crisis. And then he does this seismic shift into the national or the Irish volunteers. Um, and from the Irish volunteers, he really gets sucked into radical politics, eventually into republicanism. And while we, I suppose, remember him for the two big failures of his life, the countermanding order and trying to stop the 1916 rising, seen as a failure by the Republicans who wanted to keep it going. And then the Boundary Commission later on. There's so much more to his life that even brings us into free state politics. He's a very active member um, in the various cabinets right the way through from the early Dáil cabinets through to the War of Independence, the Civil War, and then throughout the coming Ale cabinets of the 1920s. Um, and then he has this academic life that runs completely in parallel with this. Um, and as Elva, one of our, our contributors to the book, who's on the show with us tonight, mentions in her essay, in the book. It's not that he fluctuates between periods of activism in scholarship and activism in politics. The peaks of both coincide. So he's this really omnipresent individual who had a hugely active life in both politics and scholarship and uh, you can't really tell the story of the Irish Revolution without Owen McNeill. Yeah, that's exactly how you, Anima, begin your introductory chapter, that it is impossible to tell the story. And why do you think in a way, when we, we were, th- we, in general, when you think of the revolutionary generation and the men and women who were involved, Owen McNeill's name doesn't immediately spring to mind. And you couldn't have had that decade without him with the Irish volunteers, with his, his important role. In 19- he was a supporter of the War of Independence. He was the first minister for finance, you know, min- then minister for industries, minister for education. You know, like, it, he's, he's a huge figure in this. And yet we tend to, we tend to have boxed him off into just a, a very small part of the story. I suppose there's a couple of factors here. One is historiographical. Um, you know, he has a, a biography by his son-in-law, Michael Tierney. He has a, a collection of essays that was written 50 years ago, um, the Scholar Revolutionary. But other than that, he has evaded the kind of canon of Irish history in some ways. The second, I think, is that he's claims to be a reluctant politician, but for a reluctant politician, he spends an awful lot of time in politics. And the third one is he is genuinely quite a self-effacing individual. So he he doesn't take himself that seriously. My own chapter in the book looks at his family life and it, it kind of softens the image of Owen McNeill. I think we see him as this kind of father figure, a very serious scholar and this kind of thing. But the Owen McNeill of, of history and of reality is one that really didn't take himself that seriously. He, I think he had a sense of almost play about him, whether it was in his politics or in his scholarship. He was genuinely delighted to be in the company of the people he was around. Now, some of them were running rings around him when it came to organising the, the conspiracy of the 1916 rising behind his back. But he loved being around these political figures and he really loved being around the scholars that he actually looked up to, despite the fact that he stood shoulder to shoulder with them as his peer. And the subtitle of the book is The Pen and the Sword. And I suppose you could say he wielded both of them. But is there a sense that the pen was mightier than the sword for him or were both equally important? Uh, you know, that famous article he wrote uh, uh, about the North beginning, you know, you know, in a way that's the, the founding moment for the, the volunteers and leading to the volunteers. So like he, he, I suppose he was influential with both. 
Yeah, we're playing around with a few little concepts in that subtitle. Um, I suppose the other thought of the sword, as well as the fact that he's involved in the revolution, is MacNeil's medieval um, view to the world. So he does have a very clear sense of medievalism that for a change, unlike maybe the revivalists who would have been, um, I suppose, taken with Irish mythology and, and maybe some lore around Ireland, he is a scientific or sees himself as a very scientific historian who has created the um, archivally and archaeologically based um, understanding of, of early Irish history. Um, so that medievalism then informs his contemporary politics. And whether it's the North began or whether it's his understanding of redrawing the border and partition and the question of Ulster, he thinks about things in a, a historical lineage that goes right back to the origins of documented written Irish history. So that's the other element of the sword. But in the question of which wins out, I think overall it's very much the pen. He is a scholar. He's someone who thinks and writes. And the other MacNeil that we wanted to bring out in the volume is the MacNeil who wasn't writing as a historian, but the journalist, the activist, the polemicist. He's an incredible contemporary writer and he's right up there with Arthur Griffith and others in terms of his influence on propaganda and writing for contemporary political purposes during the Irish Revolutionary Decade. Emer, why the decision to make the book about MacNeil? You know, you could have organised a conference, you could have uh, brought together contributors for any figure or any subject to do with this. What was the attraction of doing it based around Owen MacNeil? Well, I think um, UCD had held a History Hub series to mark the centenary of When the North Began was written in 2013. And then NUI, because of MacNeil's connections with NUI, had held a conference, a seminar in 2016. So the idea was to look at those people who contributed to those two existing seminar series and then myself and Connor and Morris Manning sat down and kind of thought, OK, well, where are the gaps? Where do we need to kind of invite uh, other contributors? Because, as we said, he was a very difficult man to cover. There's so many facets to him. And that's really, I suppose, why we came up then. The other issue was trying to divide the book so that, you know, it held together and was cohesive into the different sections so that we wanted to make sure that we really covered every aspect of his life. Um, you know, it's hard to look at any event or any organisation in the late 19th, 20th century or early uh, 20th century that MacNeil didn't touch in some fashion or wasn't involved with in some fashion, either centrally or on the periphery. So, yeah, that's how the book came about. Um, his connection with NUI, he was very dedicated to the idea of a national university. He championed the Irish language, as Liam McMahuna examines in his essay. He stood for the NUI constituency. And, of course, he was professor of early, uh, including medieval Irish history at UCD. So there's a lot there. And we sometimes, I think, forget about that side of his life. You know, I tend to, I think in my own head, think of Owen McNeil in terms of the political dimension and uh, the activism there. And I, I don't, even though I am on the Irish Manuscripts Commission and he was so influential and we'll talk to Elva about that later, but I, I tend to think of the one side and I think the volume brings out successfully the different dimensions to his life And uh, because this wasn't just uh, some kind of part-time activity, the dipping in into scholarship, he was a very serious, significant scholar. He was a very serious, significant scholar and he literally laid the groundwork for the discipline of early medieval Irish history. And as Elva Connors already mentioned it, 
as Alva really explores in his and her essay, you know, they went hand in hand. I mean, uh, Michael Laffin tells a lovely story in his chapter where uh, in the run up to the Easter Rising, Colin Malachlan, who himself was a medievalist um, and contributed to MacNeil's Feshrift, uh, arrived at Woodtown where the MacNeils were living at that time. And as he was coming in with others involved, uh, Ore McAllister was leaving and himself or a McAllister and McNeil had been working on a recension of Lara Gavala. So literally through the front door, you see this this exchange. It's fascinating, you know, and even preparing to come in here today, I was going through the book yesterday and I was looking and you're just still discovering so much about him. I thought, did I know that before? And Connor, it's funny, you know, institutions have difficult relationships with revolutionaries at the time and then in later years love to be associated and have the connection. Trinity expelled Robert Emmett, but then 200 years later renamed a lecture theatre in his honour. You know, UCD, you know, had problems with, you know, him being arrested after 1916. The Royal Irish Academy had a problem with him. But then, of course, uh, afterwards, then uh, people like the connection. Yeah, I think this tells us a lot about big institutions of whatever shade or, or shape and how they try and see which way the wind is blowing. So Owen McNeil in 1917 is in a deeply unlucky and, and um, I suppose, bleak situation. He's in prison. He's serving a life sentence. Uh, he believes he will never get out. He's writing to his family thinking he's only ever going to see them in the, the visitation room of, of various English prisons for the rest of his life. There's no particular uh, sense that any of those who have got convictions and are still in prison after Lloyd George's quote-unquote Christmas gift when he gets uh, some of the internees out um, after after the, the Christmas of 1916... And meanwhile, he's getting correspondence from uh, the National University of Ireland, from UCD and from the Royal Irish Academy, telling him he's getting kicked out of all his posts because he's broken the law, he's a convict, and you can't be a professor or a member of the Royal Irish Academy when you do these various things. Um, And then when he's released from prison, lo and behold, uh, in the summer of 1917, and there's this rapid reversal uh, in his own fate, and also, I suppose, in the political mood of the time, he plays a central role in the Sinn Féin Ordesh of 1917 in October, and that's the Ordesh where Sinn Féin changes its policy from being uh, Arthur Griffith's party of, of dual monarchy towards being a fully Republican party and moving towards revolution. Um, and rapidly, McNeil now is moving into a space where the winds of change are blowing with them and he's ahead of those winds. Um, but he still finds himself in a really precarious financial situation. Um, he's got a large family. He's the sole breadwinner, uh, obviously, of that family, with the slight exception of his son, Niall, who's actually had to leave his studies early to go and work for McNeil's friend, John Gore, as a, as a uh, law intern uh, in town to try and raise some money for the family. And then McNeil embarks on this lecture series that's organised by his close friend in the Irish Volunteers, Bulmer Hobson, um, who sets this up for him, not as a way to... I suppose there is a propaganda element to it as well. But for McNeil, one of the big things here is he actually needs to put bread on the table. So he organises this series of lectures in 1918 on phases of Irish history in the Rotunda. And they they play to packed out crowds. People are paying to go in to listen to old McNeil talking about the early history of Ireland. And this then becomes the book phases of Irish history. And after all this happens, he's finally readmitted into UCD. He's readmitted into the Royal Irish Academy. And these various institutions kind of come back to McNeil with their tail between their legs when they see that the winds of change are moving towards republicanism, moving towards the revolutionary parliament of Dáil Éireann. 
and this is this is before the truce or treaty or anything. So there's this rapid rehabilitation that happens almost as fast as the crisis in McNeil's employment and his various institutional affiliations. And that, I think, is probably the biggest pivot point in all McNeil's life. Michael, Owen McNeil died in 1945, so he was dead before you were born. But I wonder, growing up, how much of a of a factor was he? How much was he talked about? And how much was how much were you aware of his his life and his story? Well, um, yes, I was born in 1951, so he was six years dead by the time I came in on the scene. And uh, by the time I was uh, sort of thinking about these things, uh, it was coming up to the anniversary of the 50th anniversary of 1916. And there was a huge amount of talk in, the, in, in my house, which was Owen McNeil's house on Upper Leeson Street, about that whole event and his role in countermanding the um, uh, IRB military council's uh, decision to have a, a, a rising. And Frank Shaw, who was a Jesuit historian, and FX Martin were beginning to reassess McNeil. But it's very, very important to realise, uh, as Conor was saying, he was an immensely respected figure uh, during the uh, 1900s up to 1930, say. But then, when Fianna Fáil came into office, he became the Benedict Arnold figure, the guy who had actually cancelled 1916. And who was, uh, he, he, was, he was suddenly seen as, as a problematic person, as if that was a huge mistake. Um, and uh, he was airbrushed out of history. And just to put a kind of a context on that, when I was going to school, Roger Casement was coming over to aid the rising. Roger Casement was coming to contact McNeil to say, stop this, this is madness. The Germans really have no interest in you and they're only doing this as a distraction and it will be a terrible failure. I mean, in fact, uh, just a curious footnote to that is when he's over in London, in the Tower of London being uh, investigated by British intelligence, he's still pleading with them on Easter Sunday for um, a facility to contact McNeil to stop the rising. And his British securocrats uh, interviewers say, maybe it'd be better if it happens. Uh, we'll flush them out. And I mean, uh, if, if ever there was a, a moment where the security services spelt the end of the United Kingdom as it then was, that was it. But going to 1966, I mean, I was at school uh, with the grandsons of Rory Brewer and uh, Owen McNeil was a very marginalised person and he was treated, his countermanding order was treated as, as though it was treachery, sort of letting down the, the, the whole nation in its moment of potential triumph. Now, in retrospect, I, I, and I make the point in my essay at the very end, if you actually look at it, if the rising had been more generalised, it would have been equally unsuccessful, but the framework of the volunteers right across the country would have been much more extensively wiped out, probably. So that major mistake or error of McNeil's, I think now has to be seen in retrospect as something which left something intact for uh, Collins and others to use um, in building up towards the War of Independence. And likewise, the Boundary Commission, clearly he was on a hiding to nothing on, on that because the Lloyd George and Churchill and, and Birkenhead had given absolute commitments to the Unionists that it wouldn't be a very different Northern Ireland. But they sold a pup to Collins and Griffith uh, and sold them, you know, that they could get back from Manitourone, South, South Down and possibly even Derry City. But even now, McNeil was from the Glens of Antrim, so he was a Catholic from a Catholic enclave in East Ulster. Was his heart in it? And did he really, uh, in, his, in his head, think that uh, segregating Northern Ireland into 
and massively Protestant area and uh, a mainly or a majority Catholic area and giving the Catholic area to the south was a good idea. I wonder about that. And Dermot Farisher has an excellent article in the in the volume and he, he tells the story of how once the countermanding order was issued, Constance Markovich marched in and saying, I'm going to shoot Owen McNeil and James Connolly stops her and he tells her no. Well, there's, there's, there's a couple of amusing things about that. The Lord Lieutenant at the time was uh, up in Phoenix Park and he was sipping brandy, according to Lone O'Brien, quite extensively and marching up and down the drawing room uh, getting a bit polluted, and he said, "I'm going to hang McNeil," and that's on that's on the Wednesday of the rising. And on the previous Saturday, Countess Markovitch had wanted to shoot him, so uh, he didn't have many friends uh, that time. But on the other hand, um, uh, it has to be said that Connolly stood by him, and Pierce uh, stood by him and said that he had acted honourably. Michael, can I ask you about uh, what happened to Breen? Because you did a very powerful RTE documentary a few years ago, Lost Son, and, you know, visited Sligo and followed in the footsteps. And it is, it must have been so heartbreakingly tragic for Owen McNeil and, and, and his wife and family, the three sons who fought in the War of Independence, but then taking different sides in the Civil War and Breen on the anti-treaty side. And it, it must have been heartbreaking, and especially the the circumstance. There's still confusion about what exactly happened, but it seems like maybe perhaps they surrendered and were disarmed and shot, that it, it definitely doesn't seem to be killed in combat. Well, I think it's fairly clear now that they were captured and executed by a column of Free State soldiers run by, um, uh, commanded by two officers. They were put standing together and machine-gunned, but just immediately before that happened, Brian McNeil made a run for it and he was shot down about 15 or 20 yards away from the others. And that was covered up completely. And McNeil was again sold a pup uh, the uh, one of the Free State officers involved, and I don't know which of them it was, came to his house in Netley and told him that uh, he'd been shot in a fair fight and that as he lay dying, he told McNeil that uh, he was joking with, it, with the people who captured him uh, and saying yeah, they asked him where the others were in his party. He said, you'll have to find that out for yourself. He swallowed that completely and he and his wife were sent a lot of letters at the time suggesting that Brian had been tortured and all the rest of it. And he regard he wrote a letter in early 23 to James O'Donovan, who was a, a Republican activist, in which he gave the, the substance of what he had been told. And he was he was clearly heartbroken about it, but he, he, uh, he was massively deceived. And it turned out later, um, we now know the truth. We now know precisely what happened because a Free State soldier gave the Republicans a very good account. I was somewhat sceptical of it because it was so pat. But um, later stuff, which I've now uncovered, corroborates it completely. He was, he was, they were machine-gunned after capture. And part of that terrible tragedy and trauma of the Civil War, and, and we, we'll return to that. But Elva, you begin your essay with a very interesting quote from the famous Dudley Edwards, a professor of, of, of Irish history at UCD, who, who had comments about uh, the, the activism and academic work of McNeil. And you, you, you challenge that because you show that it wasn't as if, you know, he was just some kind of, you know, part-time academic who only kind of drifted into it when other things were. He wasn't this also this someone escaping political failures, that the scholarship and the academic life was really a, a central pillar of his whole career. Oh, absolutely, Patrick. I mean, one of the, I think, defining characteristics of, of McNeil 
is that the two things are so closely woven together. It's also one of the reasons that I think McNeil can be quite difficult to encompass because it is very difficult to separate out those different aspects of his career. And when I came to look at McNeil and my, I suppose my engagement with McNeil has primarily, up to the point that I was, was researching uh, this material, was primarily as somebody who works in, in early Irish history. And we very much look at McNeil as this sort of foundational figure. So for me, the, the dominant I've had of MacNeil for a long time has been of MacNeil the, the academic. But when I came to look at his publication record, you know, looked at what he said in his memoir, for example, which is an extremely interesting publication and, 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 and well worth reading, um, it became quite clear that the two are so closely combined with each other throughout all the different phases of his career. And in order to understand his academic work, you need to understand his political motivations and similarly in order to understand what he's doing politically and how he thinks about Ireland and how he thinks about you know the, the Irish as, as as a people for example or how he thinks about Irish national history we also have to think about his his academic work so you know even though that 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 quotation from from Dudley Edwards and I mean the reason I chose it is because it's one that very frequently um, appears in assessments of MacNeil I think it sort of led people up the wrong pathway in terms of thinking about how those uh, different elements work together. And, and to give an example, and again, it's something that's been alluded to already, um, that famous article of his, The, um, the North Began. So this is published in, in 1913. It's the same year in which he publishes um, a really important edition, which is still used by scholars, of the poems of a pseudo-historical Irish writer named Flan Manistruch. And for me, putting those publications side by side you quite a lot about MacNeil that he's doing the two things at once and they're cross-fertilizing each other um, at all points as well. Yeah, the Dudley Edwards quote begins by saying that uh, he put patriotism, his patriotism came before his devotion to history and uh, you dismantle that very effectively. Is there a sense though that when you look at his scholarship that there is there is an influence, as you say there, there is an influence from the, the political when he's writing about empire, when he's writing about the nation or even St. Patrick, that it's very much shaped by his his background growing up in the glens of Antrim and it's shaped by his his thinking about the political issues of the day. Very, very much so. I mean, when, when you look at, say, the areas that he works in, particularly sort of the organisation of early Irish society, this is really deeply influenced by the fact that he's a subject of the British Empire. He's very influenced by the environment in which he grows up, also by his critiques of that environment as well. And, and, and one of the things, um, I, I hope to give you a, a good example of this, is when MacNeil talks about early Ireland, he envisages it as being made up of you know, interlocking communities. So there is sort of a local level of communities, then there's sort of a higher level made up of, of sort of various kingdoms, Finally, there's provincial kingdoms and a kingship of Ireland. And when he tries to explain that, he uses the analogy of the British Empire. And at a certain point, you begin to wonder when he talks about, you know, dominion status. And then he uses that to explain, you know, early Irish politics works. How much is his understanding of early Irish politics, in fact, influenced by how he sees the running of the British Empire of his day. And once you see that, it becomes quite clear in an awful lot of his work that his view of early Ireland is a sort of a perfected version of the British Empire. And he does it so skillfully and so well 
that that view has gone actually relatively unchallenged by very many scholars who work within the field. So he's very deeply influenced by that background. I mean, other areas that run through his work as well is he has a deep hatred of things like bureaucracy, for example. Um, it's something that pops up again and again in his work. So when he looks back to the early Irish past in which bureaucracy is minimised in terms of the voice of the community. So he creates a sort of almost utopian view of the early Irish past, which is very much shaped by what he thinks an ideal Ireland in the present would would look like. Okay, well tonight we are looking at the life and legacy of Owen McNeill. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll continue our debate about the political influence and indeed the influence to scholarship of Owen McNeill. So stay with us here. On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Owen McNeill, inspired by the publication of Owen McNeill, The Pen and the Sword, published in hardback by Cork University Press and edited by Connor Mulva and Emer Purcell. And we are joined by the two editors on the show tonight, Dr. Emer Purcell and Dr. Connor Mulva, also by Senator Michael McDool, who's a grandson of Owen McNeill, and Dr. Elva Johnston of UCD. Connor, let's go back to 1916 and the countermanding order because there are good accounts of it in the in the collection and about what was motivating him in terms of a belief in a just war and had to be and all these different things and he viewed it differently than he later viewed the war of independence and i suppose you can see where he's coming from even if it was controversial at the time and afterwards yeah, so there's these two crucial memoranda one written just before the rising which outlines mcneil's view on when and if the Irish volunteers should rise, largely around the idea that if they're being suppressed or if any move is made to acquire uh, and, and um, I suppose, confiscate their arms. The second one then is a memorandum he writes after the rising, really giving his version of events. So these two memoranda are incredibly important for us in reconstructing the historical understanding MacNeil had in uh, without any hindsight before the rising and then with immediate hindsight of the rising. Um, it's quite clear that he's drawing on one of two just war theories, so either from a Catholic and Christian theological perspective um, and that type of, of Thomas just war, or else he's looking at von Clausewitz. It's it's unclear. Michael might have an opinion on this uh, as to which one is, is maybe more dominant as to which MacNeil would have been aware of, but he's quite clear on what would be justified? And of course, in the uh, in the the Catholic and Christian idea of just war, the idea that you might be successful is a key factor in trying to work out whether you should actually go to war. So for MacNeil, he realised uh, at various points during um, Holy Week when you know he realises that the wool has been pulled over his eyes, that the castle document is a forgery, and that uh, the casement mission has uh, come to naught that this is going to be um, a, a, a drowning in blood. Um, exactly what Pierce is looking for in many ways and why Pierce is perfectly happy to rise on the Monday. So as a result of this, he says, as, as it comes out in the countermanding order in the Irish Independent, volunteers entirely deceived, no uh, parades for Sunday. So this is probably him as, as most decisive. So while many historians, and I think Michael has captured that really well in terms of the historiographical um, turn against MacNeil and I think also the, the creation of a very two-dimensional MacNeil um, and Tierney and others have said this in the historiography that MacNeil is 
He plays a sort of a character role in many of the popular histories of the Rising that come out around the, the 50th anniversary in 1966. Um, and, and Tierney is particularly critical of Max Caulfield, for instance, who he says kind of makes this two-dimensional wooden own MacNeil that is there simply as a counterfoil to Pierce and as a kind of an antagonist in a hagiographical story of how the Rising came about. But I think when we look at it in this more nuanced way and in a more historically accurate way by using those memoranda, we can quite clearly see that MacNeil was incredibly incredibly decisive. He was quite clear in what he wanted to do. And he was actually quite impressive on a military standpoint in how he actually mobilised the various communication channels to make sure that every volunteer in the country knew in a very short space of time that the rising was cancelled. So nobody could uh, could dispute the fact that um, McNeil had clearly called off the rising as commander in chief. And meanwhile, he's somewhat aware of the conspiracy that's happening under his nose with Pierce and others sending countermands to the countermanding order and ensuring that something will happen on Monday the 24th of April 1916. Michael, in a way is that the fatal flaw with Owen McNeil that he possibly was too trusting or he probably was. You you talked about how he believed the accounts they gave him about what happened to his son. He he had been led astray by by the more hardline elements in the volunteers and in the IRB in the run up to 1916 that there are these times where he seems to be you know maybe not critical enough or or willing to challenge what he's being told? I think there's an element of truth in that. He took people at their word. I mean, for instance, James Connolly was agitating for a, 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 a citizen army revolution in uh, late 15, early 16. And Connolly met MacNeil in a meeting arranged by Pierce. And MacNeil told Connolly, you know, that he couldn't see further than the roofs of Dublin that in rural Ireland there was absolutely no chance of success uh, and that this was a, a dead duck. And Pierce actually told MacNeil afterwards that Connolly was completely convinced by MacNeil's arguments. But the truth, of course, is that um, Pierce and Connolly uh, got together secretly and said, we'll go ahead with it. And MacNeil, uh, at the time he wrote the pre-rising memo, was arguing with the IRB members, effectively, of the, of the volunteer executive. He was making the point, you know, a blood sacrifice is immoral, uh, it can't be justified. And he, he, he understood what Pierce's mentality was, but he said, you know, this is wrong. And he, he wrote an extensive memo to try to dissuade him. But he wasn't aware that the military council of the IRB, which had been established, was progressing their project completely uh, without regard to what McNeil thought was right or wrong. They hoped to rope him in by the Castle document. They hoped he would be, which was a forgery, they hoped to uh, have him on side. But um, they were effectively a, a conspiracy within a conspiracy as, um, of which he was largely unaware. And it turned out that Kathleen Clark, Tom Clark's wife, uh, met him in the, the 1917 Clare by-election and mentioned the military council to him. And he was mystified. What is she talking about? He'd never even heard of it uh, at that point. And he was now out of jail. Michael, how good a minister was he? He was the first minister for finance in the first thaw, but it kind of was, I think, a very kind of a clear snub that after a few months, uh, Michael Collins took over the role. He was moved to industries, and I don't think, I think that was very much a step down. I think later Ken Corla and then education. In all of those different portfolios, how effective was he? Well, I mean, you start with the minister for finance. That was really an honorary title because um, prior to Michael Collins organising the finances of the volunteers and the IRA and, and, and Sinn Féin, I'd, I'd say it was a treasurer's job at the, at the best, you know. And I don't think anybody, whoever, whether they are 
uh, enamoured of McNeil or, or one of his greatest critics, nobody would think that he was a likely candidate to be a serious minister for finance in the term, in, in the sense that we now understand. When it came to Count Corla, I think he was quite effective in chairing the, the treaty debates and keeping them more or less online. He got a bit of stick from the Republicans for being um, a bit partisan uh, against them. But generally speaking, I think he conducted that fairly well. Then when he becomes Minister for Education, his heart really wasn't in the whole project of establishing a state system of education. You have to remember, McNeil was a very devout Catholic. Most devout Catholics at the time thought this really wasn't the business of the state. And if you go back to, you know, 19th century Catholicism and uh, what the papacy was arguing, the papacy was saying this isn't really the business of the state either. Uh, It's for the church to organise this. So, I mean, I don't think, uh, whereas he was Minister for Education and um, he he participated, by the way, uh, in crucial civil war decisions like the executions and things like that, I don't think that he was... Uh, somebody who had a great plan for education in Ireland as a state activity. But Alva, an area where he did have a massive influence was in terms of the creation, the founding and the creation of of the Irish Manuscripts Commission and he became the first chair of it. And There's a great article by Michael Kennedy in the collection, but you know, you're know, you on the commission, I'm currently on the commission, it does brilliant work under uh, the, the current chair, John McCafferty. Tell us maybe about what the Irish Manuscripts Commission is and what it does. While McNeil, and Michael is absolutely right, he's an extremely devout Catholic, and he's also very conscious that he wants the state's power to be limited in areas like education. But when it comes to educating Irish people about their history in sort of broader terms, he's actually really passionate about that. And and one of the really driving forces of McNeil as as a scholar, but also in, in political terms as well, is that the... Irish as a, as a nation or that the Irish state w- will not be successful unless it has an understanding of its past in all of its complexity. And one of the things he sees the Manuscripts Commission doing is making the sources of Irish history from all periods and from all the different groups of people involved in the creation of Irish history. So whether it be Gaelic Irish or whether it be, you know, Viking, Norman, New English, Planter, that the sources from all of those areas of history will become available and publicly available to the Irish people and presented in the best possible way to the highest scientific standards. So a number of different cross-currents come into into play there. His his passion about history, his devotion to the idea of scientific truth, the idea that Ireland as, as, as a country, as a nation or as a state, and he does vacillate between how he does see Ireland in those terms, that all of that can only be fully understood if the sources for that history are made available. And he's influenced by a number of great European projects, particularly a project known as the the, the Monumenta, um, uh, which is involved in the, the sources for, for, for the medieval uh, German history. And he sees the Manuscripts Commission not as a custodian of manuscripts, is it ensures that manuscripts are edited and are published, they're made available in print and now in, in online editions. And during his time, McNeil was really at the, the forefront of the technology of making sources available. So, for example, he embraced the idea of creating facsimiles um, of, of Irish manuscripts. And the, the equivalent today would be um, digitization and digital projects. And if he was alive today, he would completely have embraced digitization. So he's very much... Um, 
with the Manuscripts Commission, I mean, he's obviously he's the first chair. It's amazing to see the amount of energy and industry that MacNeil put into, you know, chairing the commission, into organising projects. And some of the projects are still with us today. And um, some of the ones, for example, the, the, the 1641 depositions uh, that, that, MacNeil, uh, that, that MacNeil began to organise. So the, the Manuscripts Commission goes very much to the heart of MacNeil's ideas in academic, his ideas around scientific history, but also his ideas around how a modern Irish state or a modern Irish nation cannot know itself unless it knows its history as well. So all of those different elements are coming together. Tell us about the journal Analecta Hibernica, because uh, that's, that's, that does important work as well in bringing these documents to life. When MacNeil found the Manuscript Commission, he, he, he looked at different ways of disseminating the work of the Commission, so through facsimiles, through print publications. But, you know, he also recognises that there are sources there which are shorter form sources. Um, and Analecta Hibernica, it's, it's a periodical of the Irish Manuscripts Commission. I'm the, the current editor and the aim that it's had really over the last number of decades is, again, to take those sources of Irish history, those that would be shorter form, and to make them available. Nowadays, they can be accessed online as, as, as well as in, as in print form. So, you know, it's, it's really exciting to be involved in sort of continuing that, that legacy of MacNeil going, you know, going right back to, to the foundation of the, of the commission. Well, tonight we are looking at the life, reputation and legacy of Owen McNeil. We're going to take a quick break now when we come back. We'll continue our exploration of Owen McNeil and tease out the different aspects of his legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we explore the life, reputation and legacy of Owen McNeil. And it's inspired by the publication of Owen McNeil, The Pen and the Sword. Emer, uh, there's a great quote from Donico Coran about the scholarship of of Owen McNeil that you quote in the introduction of the book, and I think it gets to the heart of, uh, I suppose, his impact and indeed his legacy when it comes to scholarship. Yeah, it really does, you know, because when you talk about him as the founding father of the scientific study of early Irish history, Donico Coran points out that much of his work was highly original on all aspects of early Irish history, own inscriptions, tribal origins, source criticism, looking at the annals, the genealogies, you know, and Dunica finishes by saying that, you know, he laid down the lines which subsequent uh, research was to follow. And I think in terms of his legacy, you have to go back and look at his historical ability, which was down to his ability to read the source material. He could read Old Irish, he could read Middle Irish, he could read Modern Irish. He had this fantastic ability to interrogate the sources and there a wide range of sources. And he also had what many have commented upon. He had historical flair or intuition. And those things combined, you can see how he is regarded as the founding father of early Irish history. He has a fantastic paper on population groups published in 1911 in the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academies. He's the starting block and I think that's his legacy. Even today, if you want to study early Irish history, he is the starting block. And what's incredible is he was the starting block when we didn't have very many printed editions. We did have some so even today, early Irish history is difficult to navigate and we have printed sources, we have dictionaries, we have many resources you know, available to us online, whereas he was working with the primary source material. And the phases of Irish history and Celtic Ireland, they really are the, the, the starting blocks that you have to go back to if you want to study early Irish history in 2023, which is incredible. Yeah, because scholarship moves on, you know, people who uh, might be at the top of their game in a particular decade, you know, they might find that their works aren't being read 
two decades later but it's incredible the way people still go back to Owen McNeil and as you say it is that starting point. And I should say you know he's not infallible you know at the time say for example Tomás O'Reilly took issue with his studies on St. Patrick. He's well known for his work in early Irish law, but some of the, his contemporary scholars like Bergen and Thurnaisen took issue with some of his, his thinking on early Irish law. But as I said, you know, in order to take issue, you still have to go back and read those works. So, yeah, his legacy is incredible. And again, I think this book presents the opportunity to, to really reflect upon that. Michael, we sometimes see uh, Owen McNeill as a moderate, but at times he could be uh, on the hard line as well. You know, Sean Hales, a TD, was was murdered uh, just after the new free state came into existence. As a response, the, the government executed four prisoners that they were holding. Owen McNeill spoke very strongly in favour of those executions in the Dáil. And in one of the articles, it suggested that he was one of the, the strongest supporters in cabinet for the executions. And, and you know, that, that's something that was controversial at the time and afterwards it's certainly very controversial even still today. It was very controversial but you have to remember in the summer of 1922 the civil war was getting going. When his son Brian was killed there was just simply that was just a, a shooting out of hand without any authority but they passed a resolution in the Dáil establishing the right for the Free State Army to conduct field court martials and execute people found under arms against the state. And this was how seriously they thought the Republican guerrilla campaign was. And the response of Liam Lynch and the leading Republicans was to issue a statement saying that every judge, TD, senator, minister and uh, army officer and a whole lot of other people were to be executed. Their lives were now forfeit. And that was in November, I think, of 1922. And you have the shooting of Childers, because uh, he was found under arms, even though he was carrying a pistol that Michael Collins had given him. But the crucial thing was that on the 8th of December, you had this situation of 1922, where two TDs on their way to a sitting of the Dáil were shot. One of them died instantly and the other recovered outside the Ormond Hotel on Ormond Quay. And the government met instantly and said, if this goes on and they keep burning uh, TD's houses and uh, senators' houses, the entire apparatus of, of Doyle Aaron will collapse. So they met and they, they took this incredibly arbitrary decision to say, right, we have to show these people we really mean business. And uh, they selected four people, including Rory O'Connor, Rory, Liam, Dick and Joe. And they just said, right, if, 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 if this is going to happen, if TDs are going to die, more of you are going to die. And they put them in front of a firing squad um, which was conducted by Owen McNeil's ne- nephew, Hugo, in Mount Joy the following morning uh, without any trial and executed them. And McNeil and, uh, and, and uh, went into the door and defended that. And he said, you know, as far as he was concerned, this is salus populi suprema lex. Uh, uh, the fundamental obligation is to preserve the state. And uh, if this is uh, murder, try me for murder. Uh, so, I mean, that was, uh, that was tough speaking. And I mean, who was going to put him on trial for murder? That's a different question. But um, it's it stated that um, Richard Mulcahy proposed this at a, at a cabinet meeting and McNeil seconded and said, yes, we have to get serious gloves come off now. If our people are going to be shot, theirs are going to be shot. And they have to understand that um, we have more of their people to shoot than they have of ours. And uh, we'll put an end to this. And, and by the way, um, it was completely unlawful. In, in, in any recognisable view of the term what's lawful. But the executions 
both those executions and the field executions um, across the country were very effective um, because combined with the role of the church in condemning the Republicans, most people began to say, hold it, uh, do we really want to go down this road? And it was, it was savage, if you like, but it worked. Savage, but it worked. And Connor, I think that ties into, uh, I suppose, the the legacy, part of the legacy of the Civil War. Uh, I think we'll find in this year, uh, the state trying to come to terms with uh, uh, some of these uh, consequences. And I think some parts of it still need to be, uh, the state still needs to come to terms with what happened during that terrible period. But how would you assess the legacy of Ung McNeil overall? Like, there are all these different dimensions that we've been discussing over the last hour. There's all these different dimensions explored in the book. Uh, it's 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 perhaps not an easy life to just encapsulate in in just a, a few a few ideas because there's so many ideas. We didn't even really go into the Gaelic League. We didn't go into you know all these other dimensions that you could have done a show just on the scholarship. That uh, he's many different lives in one. He's a deeply multifaceted individual. Maybe to come back to Michael's point, I think one thread that runs through McNeil's life is his relationship with the law because his original bachelor's degree and um, one of the subjects that it was in was jurisprudence um, and when it comes to the executions this is two days after the Irish Free State is established and the 1922 constitution comes into law and McNeil's relationship with violence is a very interesting one because he's quite clear here that the monopoly of violence is the property of the state and we will exercise that above any written or statute law and they've just passed a constitution and they break it within 48 hours by putting four men who had nothing to do with the with the murder of Hales against a wall and shooting them. I didn't actually know that Hugo McNeil was the, the uh, officer in charge of the firing squad so that's that's something I'm, I'm processing here live in the studio. Um, meanwhile, if we look at his history, I do think maybe in a contemporary sense, one thing we can reflect on all McNeil is that he actually contributes in an interesting way to current debates on global history and decolonising history because what McNeil is doing in writing a history of the Irish people before colonisation and before invasion using archival written sources and using a Rankian approach V.S. Eigenlich of Eisenbart telling it exactly like it is in the archives and weeding out all the myth and the lore he is doing what scholars in the modern sense are trying to do with various uh, national and regional histories of Africa, of South Asia, and of various other colonised peoples. So McNeil is a decolonising or a post-colonial scholar for Ireland, contemporaneous to the fact that he's waging a revolution against the British Empire and has this fascinating relationship with violence, with the holding of arms, and he very much seems to take an American relationship to the right to bear arms and the right to found an Irish volunteer movement. So he's someone that sees that relationship between law and violence in very interesting ways. And the last thing I'll say just on the on the judicial or the, the legal aspect of Owen McNeil, um, when he sits in the Irish Boundary Commission, I think it came across to me when I was writing uh, my chapter in the book and when I was looking through the other chapters that McNeil sits uh, in a quasi-judicial sense. He looks at his role in the Boundary Commission as that of something of a judge. And of course, he's the only person there who is seeing himself in that light. Okay, we have um, Justice Feetham, who's the the chair, and he is a real judge. Um, But it's quite clear that Ulster's representative, J.R. Fisher, sees himself as a politician and he's leaking left, right and centre during the Boundary Commission while McNeil is maintaining absolute 
you know, uh, secrecy to the fact that his own cabinet colleagues don't understand this. And I think some of that can be explained by this strange relationship that McNeil exercises throughout his life between his understanding of the law and how that should function in the various things. So I think when people are reading through this volume, think about McNeil as someone who has a very interesting relationship with the law. And it is one of those threads that kind of brings through the various decisions, sometimes strange decisions that we see in his life. Okay, and a figure I think that we've shown on tonight's show, a figure that definitely shouldn't be sidelined in history and is fundamental to understanding the events of the revolutionary decade and the first years of the new Irish state. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts tonight, Dr. Emer Purcell, who's the co-editor of that Own McNeil book, Own McNeil, The Pen and the Sword, Dr. Connor Mulva, the other co-editor of the volume, Senator Michael McDool, and Dr. Elva Johnston uh, of UCD and the editor of Analecta Hibernica. My thanks as well to my producer Marisa Sullivan, to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.